The scripture today comes from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. And it reads, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going another step down before me, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Ooh, excuse me. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jew said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, <clears throat> see, you are well, sin no more, and that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling himself God, was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is God's word to us. Perhaps you've heard uh, the phrase or used it maybe in an argument or a discussion. It's, it's the phrase, uh, missing the forest for the trees. So it's an odd phrase, but it actually communicates exactly uh, what, what it says, is that oftentimes there are people that are so focused on the details so focused on the particulars that they miss the big picture. They, they miss the forest and the beauty and the grandeur of the forest because they're so focused on the individual trees. Brothers and sisters, this was the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the Scriptures. They were so focused on the law, so focused on the details, they, they, they missed the big picture. They missed Jesus. And we will see this, and this begins in our text this morning, and we will continue to see this throughout the life of Jesus in the book of, of John. And in our text this morning, uh, what we have recorded for us is a miracle that took place at this place called Bethesda. Now, it is important that we get some context and understanding of this place called Bethesda, which the text says was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate. 
this pool, it was believed to have some special healing properties. According to those who gathered around this pool, who found themselves around this pool, every once in a while, uh, the, the waters of this pool would, would stir. Uh, it's probably better, that, better, probably better said or better put that, that there was a bubbling up of the waters. And, and it was believed that when these waters bubbled up, the first one to enter into the waters after the stirring, would be healed of whatever affliction or malady uh, that plagued them. John tells us that this is the place Jesus comes to upon arriving in Jerusalem for a feast. What we have John doing here in recording for us uh, this miracle is that he is continuing to paint a picture of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God, the Word made flesh dwelling uh, among us. We have already learned so much about Jesus in these short five chapters that we have uh, discussed, but this morning we learn about the mercy and the compassion of Jesus. And, and we are taught this lesson through an extraordinary miracle that took place at this pool called Bethesda. Now, scholars can tell us a great deal and do tell us a great deal about uh, Bethesda. It was believed originally that it was kind of added in, that Bethesda wasn't a real place, that the, that the writer, that the gospel writer kind of put it in there to kind of juice up the story a little bit. But archaeologists found where Bethesda was. So it's we can look to scholars to tell us about the cultural significance and, and the physical attributes and properties of this spring found in Jerusalem. But I believe that the text, the text here before us this morning, gives us clear indication of the spiritual significance of Bethesda. The spiritual significance. If we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. You see, Bethesda was not just a pool, but it was a place of misery. It was a place of misery. Look at John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Now there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate is a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five Ruth colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Gathered around this pool, there were a myriad of people who were suffering. They found themselves in a place of desperation. No doubt, there were some who were blind, lame, or had been paralyzed since birth. They were born this way and had never known what it was like to either see or to walk or to use the limbs that they were given at birth. Others perhaps found themselves suffering in these conditions, perhaps due to the circumstances in their life. 
maybe a sin that was perpetrated against them, or perhaps maybe for, from some sin that they had, they had performed in their life. Whatever brought them to the, this place, whatever, whatever reason uh, that brought them to be surrounded there at Bethesda, they all found themselves in what could be considered a miserable state. And by miserable, I mean that they were unable of their own accord to heal themselves. They couldn't heal themselves from their paralysis. They couldn't heal the, themselves uh, of their blindness. So, so when you hear the word miserable, please hear the word helpless. Those around the pool, Bethesda, were helpless. Not only was Bethesda a place of misery, helplessness, it was also a place of misguided hope. A place of misguided hope. Look at John 5 and 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. For, for 38 years, John tells us, this man, and by inference, Others had been coming to this pool year after year, month after month, hoping that this time they would be healed of their disease, of their affliction, of their malady. And while the, the text focuses on one man this morning, it shouldn't be lost on us that John tells us that there was a multitude of people there. There were a multitude of people who found themselves at this pool, which, meaning, which means there were a lot of people hoping in hope. They were hoping in hope. Many were holding out hope that they would be the first to enter the water. But, but here's the thing. They had no guarantee that, that they would let alone be first into the waters when they started bubbling up, or if when they got into the waters, they would actually be healed. When your hope is in hope, when your hope is not guaranteed, it is a misguided hope. This was Bethesda. This was the pool called Bethesda. It was a place of misery, and it was a place of misguided hope. And guess what? That is just the place Jesus wanted to be. That is just the place, a place of, of, of misery and a place of misguided hope, and that is why we see Jesus coming to this Place. You do remember what Jesus said in Luke 5 and 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus was coming to those who were in a miserable state, who though, to those who were sick and who knew themselves to be, to be sick. Jesus had come for men and women who were in this very predicament. Miserable and hopeless. We sang it this morning, didn't we? It was in the song that we sung, if you were, if you were, if you were paying attention, for the broken, for the unclean, for the hopeless, Jesus, you came. 
Listen, the prevailing view of the religious leaders at the time would have been that those who found themselves gathered around this pool at Bethesda would have been there because of some sin of theirs or that their family had done. Which means that the religious leaders would have walked by this pool and looked in and seen all these who were paralyzed and who were lame and who were blind and believed that they deserved to be there. You are getting what you deserve. They were the outcast. They were the defeated. They were the miserable. They didn't deserve healing. But for the miserable and for the hopeless, Jesus came. Isn't that the state of all who were born into this world? Because of sin, this is the plight of us all. We, what we are seeing described at Bethesda is the spiritual reality for all men and women. Apart from Jesus, all of us are hopeless. And all of us find ourselves in a state of misery. People with the inability to save themselves or escape the predicament they find themselves in. And they think they, or perhaps we, before knowing Christ, we, we thought a, a better job or, or money, a different partner, a self-help book, that those things are what are going to heal us. It is, it is going to solve this predicament that we find ourselves in. The problem is that's hoping and in hope because those hopes have no guarantee. Oh, but Jesus came for the miserable. And he came for the hopeless. And in this miracle at Bethesda, we see and have the dispensing of mercy dispensing of mercy. For as one theologian defines mercy, here in our text, we see the goodness of God to those who are in misery. That's the definition of, of mercy, the goodness of God shown to those who are in misery. Upon his arrival at the pool, Jesus, out of the multitude, again, we said there was a multitude of people there, fixes his gaze upon this one man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus asked this man a question that all those who find themselves in the state of misery need to answer. Jesus comes up, looks at this man, sees that he's an invalid, and asks him, do you want to be healed? Now, that seems like an obvious answer. <laughs> of course, this man wants to be healed. He has been an invalid for 38 years. He has been coming to this pool year after year, month after month, dealing with the hot sun and the crowds and all of these people. What do you mean, Jesus, does he want to be healed? Of course he wants to be healed. 
But maybe the answer isn't so obvious. Does he want to be healed? You see, some people who find themselves in a state of misery, sometimes because they've been in a state of misery so long, they either deny that they are in that state, they ignore the fact that they are in misery, they deny it, or they believe they have the answer to fix this predicament on their own, believing that it is not as bad as it appears and that they are fine and that they can handle it. Have you heard that before? Where you've seen somebody from the outside, this looks like you can't handle it. You are going to find yourself in a deeper state of misery if you continue in this way and you go to offer them help and they say, I don't need help. I know it because I've said it. <laughs> Here's the deal, brothers and sisters. If you are going to be the recipient of mercy, you have to acknowledge that you are in misery and need mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, it says. Those who know themselves to be poor in spirit, you, you have to admit that you can't fix yourself and that is what this man does. That is what he does. The John 5 and verse 7. The, the sick man answered him. He answers Jesus to his question, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before, before me. He is admitting, he is admitting the impossibility of his situation. He needs help. He needs help. He can't do it. He's tried for 38 years and he still isn't healed. He can't. He needs help. He's in misery. He was indeed a candidate for mercy, not because he deserved it, but because he recognized his need for it. He wanted to be healed but he was miserable and helpless, and he readily admitted it. How about you? How about you? Have you admitted that you are helpless? That you need help? Do you believe there exists within you no ability? There's nothing that you can work up to save yourself, then you are a prime candidate for the mercy of Jesus. This man admitted his condition. He was miserable, hopeless. So Jesus dispenses mercy. He tells this man, get up. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And John says, at once, immediately, he was healed. 
he, he, he reached, he got up, reached down, picked up his mat, rolled it up, threw it over his shoulder, and began to walk. In the Greek, it says that he kept to go keep on walking. So he kept on walking. The, the power of Jesus' word is on display again, just like we saw last week when he healed the official son sight unseen. In a word, in a word, Jesus healed him. He, he didn't say, oh, oh, sir, there's no one to carry you into the water. Well, let me help. I will help and carry you into the water so that you can be healed. No, Jesus demonstrated his power to heal. He heals at his good pleasure because he is the great physician. He's the great physician. Listen, you do understand that Jesus is the source for healing. He's the source for healing. Yes, Jesus uses means. Perhaps sometimes he is pleased to use some technological advances in medicine. Sometimes, other times, he uses the skillful hands of a surgeon. He can and does use all those means to heal people. But may we never forget that Jesus is the source of that healing. And sometimes healing comes straight from the source. No middleman, no, no means, and those are the healings that leave the doctors and scientists amazed. You've seen it. You've heard it, haven't you? That there, that there showed up a, a cancer on one, one and one, one film, one film, and then the next day they go and they take film again and their cancer is gone. No middleman healed straight from the source. There was no waiting on the water to be stirred. Jesus wasn't waiting on the water to be stirred. No need to be carried somewhere. That man that day was healed straight from the source. Straight from the source. This is the mercy of God. His mercy was on display in this miracle. Jesus is saying, I've come for the broken. I've come for the lame. I've come for the invalids because I desire to show mercy and compassion to those who find themselves hopeless and in misery. That's the, that's the Lord. He's gracious, as Psalm 116.5 says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Do you believe that God is merciful? Do you believe like Thomas Watson says, the theologian who says that God is more inclinable to mercy than to wrath. Think about that. Too often we see and think about God as a wrathful father waiting to discipline us. Do you see him as more inclinable to show you mercy rather than wrath? Then why do you think you can heal yourself? Why do you run from him? 
Oh, go to him. Let him know that you are helpless, that you are in misery. Lord, I cannot do it myself. It's impossible. There's no one to carry me into the pool. I need your help. That man, because of the mercy of Jesus and the power of his word, took up his bed and walked. He was healed in an instant. Healed in an instant. Here's the issue, though. As we've just said that God is merciful, as Psalm 116 says, and throughout the whole scriptures, this is how God has revealed himself. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger. We know God is merciful, but sadly, those who claim to believe in him aren't. Aren't. And we learn that as, that, as our text informs us, that there is the development of a controversy. There is the development of a controversy. John goes on to tell us about a group of religious leaders who were not too pleased to see this man strolling through the streets of Jerusalem with his mat rolled up on his shoulder on the Sabbath day. They stop him and tell him that it is unlawful for him to carry his bed on this day set aside for the law. Now, and now, while the observance of the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments and therefore is to be observed by God's people, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders throughout Jewish history began to pile on and to add on unnecessary laws and regulations to the commands set forth by God out Mount Sinai. And, and, and never, no more than the Sabbath were these extra laws and these extra regulations piled onto. So, they begin to question the man and inquire as to why he is breaking the law. And the man responds, look, I was at, I was at Bethesda. I was hanging out, <laughs> and this man comes up, and he asked me if I want to be healed, and I told him my situation, and he told me to take up my bed and walk. And I did. I was just following instructions. Here's the sad part. That man had just told them that a man came and healed him at Bethesda. And the sad part is, these religious leaders, instead of being amazed by the mercy shown to this man, the religious leaders were angry because he broke their law. Not God's law, but their law. Brothers and sisters, if you want to know what legalism looks like, this is a very clear example. Legalism is the setting of additional laws and regulations to the commands of God that you force others to live up to in order to be accepted. And usually, these laws are, are, are so difficult that not only can those who you encourage to follow them, they can't follow them, but neither can you. Neither can you. 
Jesus says this in Matthew 23, verses 2 through 4. Speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Oh, this, this is the M.O. of the legalists. And guess what? They are miserable. <laughs> they are miserable because they can't live up the standards they've set. And so what they want to do is force others to join in their misery. That's why they put the laws on people. Because misery loves company, we are told. The legalists, they're joyless and quick to judge others, believing that it is their job to police everyone. And it is sad. It is sad because it causes them to miss the goodness and the mercy of God. Notice, notice at no point, at no point in this encounter do they acknowledge the miracle. They don't acknowledge God's mercy to this man. At no point do they want to know, well, well, who healed you? Who healed you? They just want to know who told you you can break this law. Well, brothers and sisters, in Christ, oh, may this never be said of us. May, may we not be so quick to point out where others have yet to cross their, their T's and dot their I's that we miss out on all the work and the mercy God is already doing or has done in their life. Oh, we ought to live as James says. James 2 and 12, James 2 verses 12 and 13. Here's how we ought to live. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. That means if you want to judge like that, well, then you don't get any mercy. <laughs> Mercy triumphs over judgment. Imagine if this was the attitude that permeated our churches. That this attitude of mercy was the attitude that, that permeated our homes. That, that, this, that this is the way we in, in interacted on social media platforms. Oh, why? Why ought this to be our attitude? Because all those who are the, in the kingdom of God have been the recipients of mercy. You don't get in unless God has shown you mercy. No one gets in, a, in on account of their own merits. No one is righteous. No, not one. And because that is the case, we are those, we ought to be those who are quick to show mercy to others. 
Listen, to know Jesus is to know mercy. To show no mercy is to show you don't know Jesus. God's people, we, we should be the first to celebrate God's mercy in the lives of others. Because we are well aware of what his mercy has done for us. Uh, unfortunately, the religious leaders were too caught up with the law. They said this man was breaking to see the goodness and mercy of Jesus. They were too caught up. They were missing this Jesus who was merciful and kind and compassionate. And in many ways, that was the point Jesus was performing this miracle to show. This was his point. This miracle on the Sabbath. He was exposing the hearts of these religious leaders. But he was also, you do see, declaring the need for faith and repentance. He was declaring the need for faith and repentance. When, when the man was questioned regarding who had told him to pick up his mat, he had no idea who it was. He didn't, he didn't know it was Jesus. It was just a man. Jesus, right after he healed him, slips away into the crowd so as to not draw any attention to himself. And, and John tells us that sometime later, Jesus finds this man into the, in the temple, and he tells him, now that you have been healed... Now that you have been healed, turn from your sins. Stop sinning so that nothing worse may happen to him. Now, this is an interesting point. Because when John tells us that Jesus healed this man, he tells us nothing about his soul. He tells us nothing about his soul. There is no reason to believe that this man's physical healing equated with his spiritual healing. He wasn't saved, brothers and sisters. I think the text tells us that. Just because he was healed physically doesn't mean that he was saved. He didn't even know who healed him. Listen, there is no salvation apart from knowing Jesus. Just because Jesus shows you mercy by healing you physically doesn't mean you are healed spiritually. You still must repent and believe in Jesus. This is a reminder. This is a reminder that men and women should never, should never presume upon the mercy and the goodness of God. Don't presume upon it. Romans 2, 4, and 5 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard, uh, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Don't presume upon God's kindness and grace. Just because he heals you physically doesn't mean that you don't need to repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus was calling this man to repentance and faith. Believe, I healed you. 
See my goodness. Turn from your sin so that on judgment day, nothing worse happens to you. Has Jesus been good to you, friend? But you have yet to turn in faith to him. Oh, the goodness of God is led to, it's meant to lead you to repentance. So turn to him. Turn to him. We don't know about this man. John doesn't kind of, there's no turn into the back to see how it ends, right? John doesn't tell us how this man, if this man indeed repented and believed and, and turned to Jesus. But what we do learn is that he went and told the religious leaders who had healed him. And this led John to tell us that persecution increased. Persecution of Jesus began. But not only that, that these religious leaders desired to kill him. For how and by what authority was this man, was Jesus, able to heal and tell everybody, tell this man that it was okay for him to break the Sabbath law? In response to this question from the Jewish leaders, Jesus' deity is revealed. His deity is revealed. John 5 and 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working, and I am working. One of the questions that is at the heart of Christianity is the deity of Jesus. Is, is Jesus God incarnate? The answer, brothers and sisters, is undeniably yes. Yes, yes, John masterfully argued that point in chapter 1 of our study. But then there are those who deny this truth, and they, they want to know, well, did Jesus ever himself claim to be God? Undeniably, yes, because, well, when Jesus answered these men and referred to God as his father, the Jewish leaders knew exactly what he was claiming to be who he was claiming to be. In John 5 and 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This, was, this started the catalyst for putting him to death on the cross. Jesus Jesus was indeed God. They were right. Because you remember what Philip asked Jesus? When he saw Jesus, he said, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus replied in John 14 and 9, Oh, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus was indeed equal with God, for he was God and therefore had ultimate authority to work on the Sabbath just as his Father was working. Besides, Jesus says, Jesus says in Mark 2, 27, 
the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus' work was to free men and women from the bondage of sin. Oh, he was Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. The religious leaders you do see, they were so preoccupied with their laws, they were going to miss the goodness and mercy of the Messiah. Jesus had come to rescue even them from their miserable state, but they were missing the forest for the trees. They were missing the forest for the trees. Oh, may that never be us, brothers and sisters. May we not miss the mercy and the goodness and the grace of God this morning. Oh, don't, don't miss. Don't ever miss when it comes to Jesus, the forest for the trees. Let's pray.